little over a week ago, some of you may know this, a very popular, very well-known young Swedish musician died. His name was Tim Bergling, but he went by the stage name Avicii. This past week, his family issued a statement about his death, implying very heavily that the young man died by his own hand. And here's what they said. We'll put this up on the screen so that you can read their comments this past week. Family said, our beloved Tim was a seeker, a fragile, artistic soul searching for answers to existential questions, an overachieving perfectionist who traveled and worked hard at a pace that led to extreme stress. When he stopped touring, he wanted to find a balance in life to be happy and to be able to do what he loved most, music. He really struggled with thoughts about meaning, life, happiness, and he could not go on any longer. He wanted to find peace. Tim was not made for the business machine that he found himself in. He was a sensitive guy who loved his fans but shunned the spotlight. Tim, you will forever be loved and sadly missed. The person you were in your music will keep your memory alive. It's a, it's a heartbreaking letter to read isn't it? What must it have been like for this family to have to sit down and write something like that? I don't know if you caught it or not, but the family made a direct connection, one that we've been seeing actually throughout this series, between Tim's struggle to find peace and his thoughts, his thoughts about meaning and life and happiness. We have a saying here at City Church. I haven't used it in a while. I've been negligent to repeat it. But it goes like like this. Good psychology is good theology made personal. Good psychology is good theology made personal. The late A.W. Tozier once wrote this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. And this, of course, is what we're seeing in this series, that the experience of peace is a direct result of what you believe about God. And when I read about Tim Bergling's death this past week, I wondered if anyone had ever explained to him the relationship between his beliefs about God and his own search for peace. And I wondered if the outcome of his life might have been different if someone had shared that. I don't want you to miss this. I want you to understand this. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in them to the passage that we've been centering this series around. It's in Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 6, Philippians Chapter 4, starting at verse 6, if you're new to City Church, maybe you're a regular, but you would still consider yourself to be a new regular. One of the things that I say to our regular attenders here is make sure that you bring a Bible with you. That's what we do here. We look at the Bible. It is the foundation of our faith. You need a Bible, digital, hard copy, I don't care, but bring one so that you can make notes and you can record what God has spoken through the Word to you this morning. Now, while you're turning to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, just a reminder, Paul wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians from a jail cell. Dustin made this point last week. That was a great point. 
that Paul had enormous credibility with these people in Philippi because he had planted, he had started this church. And these people had seen the reality and the power of Jesus Christ in Paul's life. And as a result, they had deep respect for this man. I want to read again all the way back to verse 6. We've been looking at this passage throughout the series. We'll continue to do so. But let's, let's start again in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice in the God of peace will be with you. Now here's, let me just give you a little quick outline of where I want to go this morning so that you can follow along. I want you to see this morning the secret of peace. I want you to see the mind of peace. And I want you to see the discipline of peace. The secret of peace, the mind of peace, and the discipline of peace. Let's start with the secret of peace. And let me just state it as clearly as I can. The secret of peace is intentional thinking. The secret of peace is intentional Thinking Now, this is going to be a little bit of a review of what we talked about a few weeks ago in this series. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that the word uh, think in verse 8 is the Greek word logizomai. Now, there are a number of different words that Paul could have used, that Paul could have used for this word think. But he chose logizomai specifically because it meant concentrated, focused, careful reflection. That's what logizomai means. Concentrated, focused, careful reflection. It means to be intentional about that which we allow our minds to dwell upon. Now, again, I know this is a little bit of a review, but you can probably just prepare yourself because I'll probably continue to review the importance of intentional thinking throughout the rest of the series. And one reason that I keep bringing this up is that every chance that I get, I want to combat the absolutely fallacious idea that Christianity is anti-intellectual. Wrong, 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 wrong on every case. It is absolutely intellectual. That doesn't mean that you have to be brilliant to follow Christ. It just means that the mind is extremely important in Christianity. Let me just show you, I'm going to show you a few verses that illustrate that. And in fact, I want you to get this so much that I'm going to ask you to read these verses out loud with me. Let's put the first one up. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Love the Lord your God. Read it with me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, but we have the mind of Christ. Now those are just a few. I I mean, that's just a small little sampling. I could go on and on. We don't have time to do that today, but I could show you many, many passages in the Bible that speak about the importance of the mind, the intellect, thinking in Christianity. Now, so one of the reasons that I hammer that home Uh, over and over is because I want to combat this idea, this wrong idea, 
of the anti-intellectual nature of Christianity. But the other reason I keep hammering this home is that I don't think many of us understand that in order to experience the peace of God, we have to take the initiative to think out the implications of what we believe. Let me just, I'm going to, you know, I read to you a quote from a man by the name of A.W. Tozier a little while ago. It's probably an obscure reference to many of you. Here's another one. Another, what probably will feel like an obscure reference from uh, a pastor that was very famous in the 20th century, uh, actually a very important 20th century pastor. His words continue long after his death to be highly regarded. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I want you to just read something that he says that goes to this very point about the importance of being intentional about what we think as it relates to peace. He says this, Follow along. He says, the Bible is full of logic, and we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We don't just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. This is not Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Jesus said, look at the birds. Think about them. Draw your deductions. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field. Consider them. Faith, he says, if you like, can be defined like this. It is a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with a person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he goes round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought. And see, I hammer this home because, again, I think many of us don't understand this. When Paul uses this word legizomai, he's saying that we can't just sit around and wait for the day when we suddenly begin to experience peace magically. If you do that, you will always be bludgeoned by your circumstances or by the people in your life or even by your own inner voice. You'll be bludgeoned into anxiety. Rather, you have to take the initiative, starting today, to be intentional about what you think about in order to bring the implications of your faith to bear on your circumstances. Have you ever heard people say this? That, you know, I've, I, they've said, people have said this to me before. They might have said it to you. They'll say things like, uh, you know, the reason that you're worried is that you think too much. You ever heard people say that kind of thing? It's absolutely false. Paul is saying, if you're worried, it's because you're thinking too little. You think far too little in the right direction. And see, I want you to understand this, that faith is not optimism. Faith isn't psychological self-hypnosis. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is a reasoned response to revealed truth about God. And when you bring the implications of your faith in God to bear upon your circumstances, peace, incrementally, over time, is the result. So the mind thinking is critical to peace. It's the secret of peace. It's intentional thinking. All right. So if the mind is so important to peace, what should we think about? What is the mind of peace? That's the second thing I want to talk about. The secret of peace is taking initiative 
to think intentionally. What's the mind of peace? Well, Paul tells us what is the mind of peace, what's in the mind of peace in verse 8. It's this list of words that he goes through when he says, you know, think about whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, the one that we're going to look at today. Now, understand something, folks. These aren't just random words. This isn't just rhetorical flourish. I don't know if any of you are writers, but sometimes when you're writing, like you could, and you can do it when you're speaking too, you get into this rhetorical flourish where, man, it's like the, the pen is moving without you almost having to think about it. And you, you get into this moment where you're using words and, and phrases and metaphors, whatever, and you're just using it. You're just, you're just going on because you're in the zone. I want you to understand something. That is not what this is. Every word in the Bible, is inspired by God. Every one of these words is there for a purpose. Every word was chosen specifically by God to be included in Scripture for your benefit, for your peace. Because of that, throughout this series, that's what we're doing. We're looking at each of these words. We looked a few weeks ago at the word true. Last week, uh, Dustin led us through the word noble. Today, I want to look at this next phrase. Paul says, the mind of peace is intentionally set upon whatever is right. That word right is kind of ambiguous, right? (laughs) Is he talking about Republican politics? What's he talking about? What does he mean by, when he says, think about whatever is right? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses is, is a very specific word. It's not, it's not an ambiguous word. It's not a general word. It's a word that means just or righteous. Paul, Paul is drawing us here, drawing our attention here to the character of God. He's saying that God is just and that he is righteous and that we should let our minds continually, intentionally dwell upon the justice of God the righteousness of God. In other words, here's what justice means. Here's what righteousness means. It means that God is the rewarder of good and he is the punisher of evil. That he loves good. He's the rewarder of good. And he hates evil and he is the punisher of evil. And this is a point that is made over and over in Scripture. Again, I could read to you a ton of verses on this, but let me just give you a few. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all of his ways are just. Here's another one from Isaiah 30. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Finally, Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. We could go on. I'll just let that sort of be the basis for what I'm saying about God's, about the fact that God is righteous and that he is just. But I want you to hear me on this. Some of you need to settle this issue today once and for all about whether God is just and righteous. Because out of God, outside of God's righteousness, outside of God's justice, there is absolutely no peace for people who are in the midst of suffering and in the midst of tragedy. 
Uh, some of you may have familiarity with a book in the Old Testament called the book of Job. book of Job, it's about a guy who goes through some terrible, terrible trials, some terrible suffering, some terrible stuff. And throughout the book of Job, you can feel the anguish that this man is in. And part of the reason that he is in this anguish is because of his struggle with God's justice. You see, some of you remain on the fence about God's justice. You want to believe that he is just and righteous, but here's what you do. You judge God's justice on the basis of what you see in the world, your circumstances, the circumstances of people you love, even the circumstances of people you don't know. And every time something bad happens, you go back into questioning whether God is just or not. Hear me on this. You will never be able to let go of anxiety and experience peace until you settle once and for all in your mind the issue of God's justice, his righteousness. Never. You'll never feel peace. You'll never experience peace until you settle that issue. Now, there are a lot of people that have settled that issue in the negative. Uh, You probably know this. They've come to the conclusion that because there's so much evil and so much injustice in the world, God can't possibly be just. You've been following this story about this little boy in England. His name is Alfie Evans. You've been following this story, any of you? Little boy that was dying, government in England told his parents that they couldn't take him to Italy to get additional treatment, that they had to let him just die in the hospital in England. And essentially what they did was that not the parents, the hospital, the government, essentially what they did was that they starved this little boy to death. Unbelievable. And some people would point to that, and you, you, you can certainly understand why, right? They would point to that and they'd say, no God would allow something like that to happen. No just God would allow that. No just God could allow mass shootings. No just God could allow the death of my teenage son who was hit by a drunk driver. And of course, who can't empathize with what people feel when they say those kinds of things? My question to you is this. What peace is there in their cynicism? Cynicism is a defensive posture about life. It's a hopeless, anxious response to something that has hurt you deeply. And it may masquerade as peace, but it's not peace. Cynicism represses that part of yourself that once wanted fulfillment and joy, and instead you become hard, and over time you feel yourself losing your humanity and your compassion and your joy and your peace. It's an anxious, terrible way to live. What peace is there in the idea that wrongs will never be righted, that that's just how the world is, and that nothing you or anyone can do will change it? That's just life. What peace is there in that? If you want to let go of anxiety, you have to settle once and for all whether to believe your circumstances or the scriptures about God's righteous, just character. And I want to challenge some of you this morning. It's time for you to settle this issue. 
Stop riding the fence. By faith, declare in your mind, in accordance with Scripture, that God is just, that he is righteous. Regardless of the circumstances that you see around you, God is just and God is righteous. So the secret of peace is intentional thinking. The mind of peace is things like dwelling on whatever's true, whatever's noble, like Paul says today, whatever's right. But I want to bring you now to the discipline of peace because this is very, very important for you to understand, the discipline of peace. Because if you want to let go of anxiety, if you want to experience the peace of God, you need to understand there are no shortcuts. Peace doesn't come easily or naturally. Yes, you can take a pill and it will reduce your anxiety. But there's a difference between reducing your anxiety and experiencing peace. And by the way, I'm not against, if you need them, if the doctor has prescribed them, I'm not against taking a pill at all. Sometimes we need that. Some people need that because of the level of anxiety that they live with. Not against that, but I want you to know that that isn't peace. That may be the absence of anxiety, but it is not the presence of peace. There are no shortcuts to peace. Peace doesn't come easily and it doesn't come naturally. Peace is the product of long-term Intentional thinking out of your faith and then bringing the implications of your faith to bear upon your circumstances. And what I'm referring to here is a spiritual discipline called meditation. The discipline of peace is meditation. Now, I realize that you hear this word meditation used in a lot of different places and in a lot of different ways. So I want you to understand, and I want you to be careful. If you were to walk down the aisles of your local bookstore, whether you did it physically or virtually, like on Amazon or something, the kind of meditation that you're going to encounter, that you're going to read about, that you're going to hear about, usually, refers to meditation as a kind of emptying the mind. But Christian meditation isn't about emptying the mind. It's about filling your mind. It's about intentional thinking, which is ironic given that the critique of Christianity by most secular progressive people is that that it is anti-intellectual. But the very kind of meditation that secular progressive people often talk about is the kind of meditation in which you think of nothing. Go figure. I want to show you, though, how the discipline of Christian meditation works, and I want to give you a plan for meditation. Okay. You might notice that Paul lists uh, essentially seven words here in this passage that we're looking at. I realize that in some of your versions, uh, the last, uh, like, like there's two words combined uh, at the end, excellence or praiseworthy, but we're going to count that as one. So seven words here in this passage, which neatly fits into what? Seven days of the week. You're exactly right. At the end of the series, what I'm going to do is I'm going to recommend that if you want to let go of anxiety, I want you to, I'm going to challenge you to focus on one of these words per day. But for now, until we're done looking at what all of these words mean, let me just suggest that this week at various times, 
throughout each day for a minute, a couple minutes, maybe more, whatever works for you, you sit down and just meditate on the implications of this word, God's justice, His righteousness for your life. Now, how do you do that? Well, there's really nothing fancy about it. You don't have to hum a word. You don't have to sit on a mat and cross your legs like a pretzel. Just stop what you're doing, wherever you're at, at your desk, uh, at home. Turn off the radio. Turn off the TV. Turn off the phone, whatever, and be silent for a moment. And then just whisper a prayer. Maybe it would be like this one, but it doesn't have to be these words. This is just how I might do it. God, thank you that you're just, that you're righteous. Help me understand the relationship between your justice and righteousness and my peace. And bring my emotions into alignment with your truth. That's how I would say it. You say it, use whatever words you want. Just whisper a prayer. So silence, and then you just whisper a prayer. And then maybe you take one of the verses that I gave you this morning, or some other verse on God's righteousness, His justice, and just maybe you just memorize it. Maybe you don't memorize it. Maybe you just put, maybe you just have those words somewhere, you know, maybe like on a little card or something, or on your phone, so that you can, you can just look at it and just read the words. And then, okay, so silence and prayer, and then, you know, you're looking at the verse, and then start to think it out. And let me, just, let me just show you how you can do that with this word justice, righteousness. Uh, I want to show you four ways real quickly, just very quickly, that God's righteousness brings peace into our lives, that the kind of peace that transcends circumstances. Like, for instance, here's something that you could meditate on, that you could work out, you could think about this. God's righteousness reminds us that he's not the creator of evil and suffering. Uh, People sometimes ask, I've asked this question, maybe you've asked this question, why couldn't God have just created a world in which there is no suffering and injustice? And of course the answer is he did. That's what the world was. It wasn't until man's sin in the garden that evil and suffering and injustice entered the world. All of the evil, all the tragedy, all the suffering of this world, it's man's fault, it's not God's fault. And yet every time that tragedy strikes, every time evil happens, every time we find ourselves suffering, rather than acknowledging that it's the fault of the human race that all of this stuff exists, we blame God. Understand that the circumstances that you see around you, the evil, the suffering in the world, these aren't God's creation. These are the products of human rebellion. God's righteousness and his justice mean that he hates evil and he loves good, which means that he could never do evil or harm to you. When bad things happen to you or to the people that you love, that is not God's handiwork. God only longs to do good to you, to bless you. And even when evil and suffering and tragedy enter your world, and it will, God is both powerful enough and righteous enough that he works all of that evil together for your good. That's how much he longs to do good and to bless you. 
Now that's comforting. That brings peace to the soul. Imagine what it would be like to live like a lot of people do, constantly always looking over their shoulder in fear and guilt, wondering when God is going to punish them for something they've done or wondering if he is punishing them for something they've done. Imagine what it would be like to live in a world in which the most powerful being in the world is out for your harm all the time. There is no peace in that. That is anxiety-producing. But God's justice, his righteousness, calms those fears, and it brings, soul, it brings peace to the soul because we're reminded that all this stuff you see, all this suffering stuff, that wasn't God's idea. That's not his doing. That's our doing. So you could think about that. That's, that's like one thing that you could just spend a few minutes thinking about, reminding yourself of. Here's a second. Though imperfect, human justice is a reflection of God's perfect justice. Though it's imperfect, and it is, human justice is a reflection of God's perfect justice. Justice. Now, look, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I just talked about the little boy in England, Alfie Evans, and we could point to a million different examples of injustice because we live in a fallen world. And if we choose to, we can dwell on that all the time. And we can allow that to, become, to, to uh, drive us into cynicism. But the fact that there is any justice in the world at all is a reflection of the righteousness of God. Do you understand that human law is a reflection of the moral, righteous, just character of God? You know, when God gave the moral law to the nation of Israel, he was giving them a gift. Why do I say that? Well, imagine what it would be like to live in a world in which there were no justice. It would be anarchy. How much peace is there in anarchy? And so you see, As I'm meditating, as I'm thinking about God's justice, as I'm intentionally meditating on this, I can give thanks to God as I meditate for every case of human justice in the world that limits anarchy and human evil. I can do that. I can be thankful for that. Now, please be careful because I don't want you to misunderstand this. When Paul says to think about what is right, he doesn't mean that we're supposed to ignore injustice, to shut our eyes to the reality of injustice in the world. We we are to pay attention to that. We're supposed to be moved by those cases of injustice to remedy them, to correct them. But we do that because we know that God loves justice and he hates injustice. And that brings peace to the human soul. Think about that. Here's the third thing you could think about. Because he is just, God has promised that one day all injustice will be righted. Because he's just, God has promised that one day all injustice will be righted. The Bible says that the story of this world isn't over yet. It says that the day will come when sickness and pain will be eradicated and people will be held accountable for the evil that they've committed. Every injustice, every man who's ever sexually harassed a woman and gotten away with it will be held accountable for that. Every atrocity that someone in power has ever committed against the weak will be judged, and they'll be held accountable 
for that. Justice will be served in a perfect way. That day will come. No one's getting away with anything. And there's peace in knowing that. I don't have to be the one who goes against revenge. I don't have to plot for revenge against you. I don't have to carry the bitterness and the hatred. Of what you've done around in my soul. That's anxiety producing. I can rest. But there is a day of accountability coming in the future. And then fourth. And by the way, if it weren't for this fourth point, that third point would scare every single one of us to death. It would crush us. But here's the fourth thing that you can meditate on as it relates to God's justice and righteousness. And that is that God's justice makes it possible for us to know the depth of his love for us. Uh, I often hear people say, uh, you know, sometimes you hear it on TV, maybe you read it on social media. Uh, Maybe, you, you know, you're talking to someone uh, in a conversation at school or work or something, and they, they'll say something like this, that, that God is a God of love only, my God is a God of love only, and he doesn't judge anyone. He's all loving, and he never judges. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard that, 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 that? Okay, okay. Um, with a God who never judges, there's no proof that he is loving. Uh, that, that God, is a, his love is an abstraction. There's no proof of it. And here's what I mean. The Bible says that because God is a God of justice, he could, I'll use a de- double negative here, he couldn't not judge our sins. He couldn't just wink at them. He couldn't just let them pass. He had to judge them. And so he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins On the cross. There on the cross, Romans 3 says, that so as to be both the one who is both just and the one who justifies, God judged human sin in the suffering of Jesus. All of his wrath was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is there in the suffering of Jesus on the cross that we have proof that God is loving. You see, without justice, love is only an abstraction. Love has to cost something to be love. It always does. Love that doesn't cost something isn't love. Love always costs something. Sacrifice is the proof of love, you see. If you don't see Jesus suffering on the cross, you never see, you don't see, and you don't understand his love. But when you understand that Jesus took the wrath of God's justice for you because he loves you, there is peace in that. If he would take all of God's wrath for you, what could possibly separate you from his love? What good would he not be willing to do for you? If he would take all of God's wrath, what could he possibly not want to do that's good for you? Just think about that in human terms. Girl, boy, start to date. They decide that they want to become exclusive. What has to happen for you to be exclusive? What's the nature of exclusive? 
the very basic sacrifice of an exclusive relationship between a boy and a girl, man and a woman, is to say, I sacrifice all of the other possibilities of relationships out there to be exclusive to you. Love costs something. It is always a sacrifice in some way, shape, or form. And without the sacrifice of Jesus, you would never know the depth of God's love for you. No one, including Christ's followers, no one has ever promised a life void of evil and suffering and tragedy. No one. But the cross tells us that the one whom we worship understands our suffering because he has suffered. suffered. Do you realize that Christianity alone among the world religions says that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ. And therefore, because he suffered, suffering isn't an abstraction to Jesus. Jesus knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. Take all of the evils in the history of the world, from the ovens of Treblinka to the killing fields of Cambodia to the chemical massacres recently in Syria. All together, they pale in comparison to the agony that Jesus suffered in that one moment on the cross. And so whatever suffering you feel today, whatever evil you may have encountered, know that Jesus understands it. He has felt it. He personally knows what suffering is. And because he knows it, you know the depth of God's love for you. And that kind of love brings peace to the soul. Now look, those are just four ways that God's justice brings peace to the soul. We could, we could talk all day long about that. We don't have time for that. But maybe you just take those four, one of those four, or two of those four truths, about God's justice, and you bring those to bear on your circumstances, you intentionally think about that, you dwell on it, you meditate it, you give on it, you give thanks for it. That is the only way to peace, my friends. It's the only way to let go of anxiety. To sift through all of your thoughts. I don't think most of us are trained to do that. When we come into this world, nobody tells us, listen, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that comes through, you're going to have to Sift through it all, and you're going to have to focus like a laser on the truth of who God is. And that and only that will let you live in this chaotic world with peace. Good psychology is good theology made personal. That's what Christian meditation looks like. This week, may I challenge those of you who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ to take a couple of times a day, a few minutes each time, and meditate on God's justice, His righteousness. When the temptation comes to think cynically, would you, sort, would you just sift that out? and Would you bring yourself back to who God is and the just and righteous nature of God. And let that bring peace to your soul. For those of you who are here today, 
who don't have a relationship with God. Maybe it's never occurred to you that God's justice is a way that you can know the depth of God's love for you. Maybe you've always been one of these people who says, you know, my God is all loving, he's not judging. But you've never understood, you've never thought, it never occurred to you before that if he's not judging, that I can't ever know how much he loves me because he sent his son to die for me. Could I challenge you today? So just take some time today. Maybe it's just right now in the privacy of your seat. Maybe it's when you get home. Would you just take some time to consider that thought? And maybe you would come to a place today where you would like to say, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for what you did for me. I believe in you. Be my Savior today, Lord Jesus. And the Bible says that if you do that, that there is a change that happens internally to you. It's a miraculous, supernatural change. And that you are promised eternal life. And eternal life includes peace on this earth. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, uh, there are many of us here in this room today who even right now experience anxiety. Lord, would you bring uh, peace to our souls through the truth, the character, uh, your character, the just and righteous nature of who you are. And Lord, would you uh, remind each and every one of us this week that if we just to, to just fill our minds with that, to meditate on those truths. And Lord, for those who are here today that have never believed in you, maybe today would be a day that the power of your spirit would move on them and that they would come to believe in you, Lord Jesus. Let us never think, Lord, that Christianity is some form of mysticism where you know we just sit around mindlessly and we experience peace. Lord, would we always understand that Christianity is about, it's about thinking. Faith is thoughtful. It's a reason response to truth about who you are. And we thank you for a passage like this that reminds us that we have to discipline our minds to experience peace. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 